297 says disciples of the Buddha fully awake both day and night dwell in contemplation on Dhamma or if we were to translate we say disciples of the Buddha fully awake dwelling both day and night in contemplation on true principles I think it's safe to assume he wasn't suggesting that we shouldn't be sleeping if that's what's called for fully awake uh, both day and night I would suggest we could at least for the purposes of our contemplation this evening take it as meaning constant vigilance the Buddha wanted us to be vigilant in our contemplation on and reflection on true principles that there are true principles it's not just chaos some people assume that because it looks the world looks so chaotic that that's all there is however there have been beings who have looked more deeply and more closely into reality and seen that there are laws that govern existence conditioned and unconditioned existence there are laws and these laws in this case the the way the Buddha articulated them and these we call them as Dhamma or true principles the Buddha emphasized that it's really important that we invest in contemplating and understanding because if we don't then so long as we live in the unawakened state we're vulnerable to falling into delusion in other words into believing in false stories like believing in the idea that you hurt me I'm angry if I hurt you it's going to make everything better that is a false story that's a bad story however when the heart is enraged with anger if we're not careful we can believe in that story or the perceptions like for instance that quote from the scriptures that Ajahn Hengsiko referred to I think in the talk he gave the other night where somebody's walking along a path and they they see what they think is a snake and they they freak out completely until they realize it's just a curled up piece of rope nothing to worry about at all however because of misperceptions which is another word for delusion we have strong painful reactions so the Buddha wanted us to attend to these teachings he gave on true principles on Dhamma and really to reflect on them regularly deeply to internalize them initially to believe in them and then if we believe in them consistently enough carefully enough sensitively enough maybe those beliefs turn into faith or trust which is more a matter of the heart and believing is something we do in our heads in our hearts we trust and that's a transformed relationship trusting in true principles the Buddha said as a form of protection so this is to be encouraged and if we haven't heard about true principles if all we've heard about is false stories and we believe in those well 
then we suffer the consequences of that. However, we here all have heard of these teachings, and like, for instance, the teaching that awakening is possible. We have faith that the Buddha was awakened. Or maybe if you're new to these teachings, you have a belief that the Buddha was awakened. Or maybe if you're very new, you may be just considering the possibility that the Buddha was awakened. However, that's going in the right direction. And that belief, what does it do? It relativizes the suffering of life. If we think that suffering is an obligation, that we're all going to suffer, or that the power to free us from suffering is held by some imagined external authority, some external agent, that has a powerful effect on us. And these teachings are invited to trust in the possibility that with the right kind of effort, human beings can awaken to actuality which frees them from suffering completely. Doesn't free them from pain. Enlightened beings still experience pain. However, they don't turn the pain of life, the everyday difficulties of life, like getting old and so on, don't turn that into suffering. So the belief that awakening is possible, that the Buddha was awakened, is important, believing in that true principle. Believing in the true principle of the law of karma. It may not be obvious. Some people getting around lying and cheating and shamelessly manipulating conditions to get what they want, and it might look like they're getting away with it. However, the Buddha and the great disciples have talked about the law of karma, that if there's a wholesome intention and we act on it by way of body, speech, or mind, there will be, whether we like it or not, whether we think there should be or not, there will be a wholesome result. However small that wholesome intention is, if we act on it by way of body, speech, or mind, there will be a wholesome result. And the trust in that principle can be very inspiring. Because maybe we are feeling a little lazy, can't be bothered being generous, can't be bothered being patient, can't be bothered being kind, can't be bothered disciplining attention. And if you have faith in that principle, that can be a powerful motivation. However small the wholesome motivation might be, the intention might be, if we act on it, there will be a benefit. And we can trust in that. And conversely, an unwholesome intention. Again, trusting in that. If there's an unwholesome intention, however small, if we act on it by way of body, speech, or mind, there will be suffering as a result. And so trusting in these true principles, for example, trusting that the Buddha was awakened, awakening is possible, trusting in the law of karma, these true principles the Buddha wanted us to reflect on, to internalize, to establish these in our hearts and minds so they protect us. So that's what is happening when we dwell on true principles, when we study the Dhamma, when we reflect on the Dhamma, when we internalize these teachings, true principles, what we're doing is we're aligning our being, we're orienting our being towards that which has the potential to free us from suffering. 
And once again, if we don't do that, well then we're vulnerable to the opposite. You know, we're vulnerable to falling into believing in stories that take us in another direction altogether, that take us towards increased suffering. So this is what all meaningful religions are about, and protecting us from falling into suffering. That's what religion is for, is to protect us. And, and in the Buddhist religion, to protect us from being polluted by the poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. And these, the Buddha identified these are poisons, these are pollutants. Uh, uh, not just concepts, but, but greed is a poison. It pollutes our perceptions, and when it sinks into the heart, it distorts our behavior. Why is it the case that there are more people on the planet these days dying from being overweight than dying from starvation? Why is it that people feel they've got the right to follow their hateful impulses and steal that which belongs to others or abuse other beings? It's the poison of hatred. These poisons, the Buddha wanted us to exercise the discipline of attention, to look inwards, to reflect, to feel inwards, to see. And in the seeing, in the process, trusting that there's a possibility of doing something about it. To cultivate the heart with these understanding, trusting and true principles so that we're protected. Now, it's obvious that in our world, not everybody has these protections and not everybody believes in true principles because it's, it's pretty clear that there's a lot of people who believe in the story that, for instance, it's okay to follow hateful impulses. And that anger arises in the heart. Somebody says something that you don't like Disliking is perfectly understandable. Disliking is just a movement in the mind and the feeling that goes with it. Disliking, perfectly normal. Liking, disliking, perfectly normal function for all beings. Awakened and unawakened beings have liking, disliking. The relationship to liking, disliking for awakened beings is profoundly different. The relationship towards liking, disliking for awakened beings is they don't get lost in them. And wisdom determines whether they follow those impulses or not. For us, because we're still vulnerable, we're still lost in the, the unawakened state, that we need to make an effort to protect ourselves. And if we don't, then, well, you know, as I was saying, you can look around at what's going on in the world and you see that people who believe in the idea that following hateful impulses is going to bring benefit. Actually, it's... It's insane. They suffer and others suffer. And if you're persuaded by that particular false story then, and you're a kind of an introverted type and you, you get indignant and feel offended. And, or if you're an extroverted type, then you get aggressive. Either way, getting lost in anger is a disaster. However, it's perfectly normal to get lost in anger if our heart, if awareness, if consciousness 
is not rightly informed with true principles. So let's not make light of these teachings, uh, to dwell on true principles regularly, to study the Dhamma, to internalize these teachings, to have faith and to believe in these teachings, and make much of these teachings that the Buddha gave. Sometimes it seems that some Buddhists think that practice is just a matter of focusing attention on a meditation object and making the mind quiet and peaceful. And that's Dhamma practice. Well, it can be one aspect of Dhamma practice. However, there's much more to that. You can focus on a meditation object and the mind can become peaceful. However, your thinking can still be polluted with all sorts of wrong understandings or wrong views. We're familiar with the, the Eightfold Path and the, the first fact of the Eightfold Path is, is right view, right beliefs. And the teachings, for instance, on the Four Noble Truths that the Buddha taught, these teachings are to be reflected upon regularly, not just bypassed and say, I'm just going to make my mind peaceful and that's good enough. Just relaxing is not the same thing as growing up or getting wise. So the Buddha wanted us to do more than just be relatively peaceful. He wanted us to develop the potential we have as human beings so that when life whacks us with something difficult, like, for instance, we lose somebody that we care about deeply, that perception of loss, can we meet ourselves there in the grief, in the feeling angry that happens when you lose somebody you love. Habits of attachment contain a lot of energy and when there's death that energy is released and unless people are really well developed that release of energy can be expressed in all sorts of peculiar ways, including anger. How dare you die on me? There's a very normal reaction when a loved one dies. It's irrational, however, it's very predictable. Can we meet ourselves in whatever state we find ourselves when we lose a loved one, whether it's anger or sadness or fear? Or we get a medical prognosis and we feel irrationally threatened. Everybody gets sick and dies eventually. Can we really meet ourselves there? Or are we believing in false stories? So once again, uh, Buddha wanted us to take these teachings, reflect on them regularly with vigilance, internalize them like the teachings on the Four Noble Truths. What is suffering actually? Actually, what is suffering? If we don't stop and investigate it, it's very easy to perceive suffering as some sort of an indictment against us. It hurts, don't like it, something's gone wrong. Dukkha or suffering is really, this is data to be processed, this is information to be understood, this is a teaching to learn from. Dukkha needs to be studied, studied and understood so that we can see where the actual cause of suffering is. If we don't do this, well then it's very likely, and this is normal in our world, that people feel it's somebody else's fault. Or maybe 
if you've got a lot of self-hatred, you think, there I go again, hating ourselves for it. Well, that's the last thing the Buddha wanted us to do. Don't hate ourselves for suffering. Don't hate others for suffering. Rather, get interested in it. What is the actual cause of suffering? As I was saying before, the Buddha experienced pain. All beings, awakened and unawakened beings, experience pain. What's the difference between pain and suffering? Upadana is the word the Buddha uses. It's clinging. That contraction of the heart around the experience of pain and turns it into suffering. Or likewise with desire. You know, some people think the Buddha and awakened beings don't have any desires. That's a really unfortunate misunderstanding. You read Ajahn Chah's explanation of that, and there's a wonderful teaching in the collective teachings of Ajahn Chah called Reading the Natural Mind, where he very precisely talks about the difference between the average worldling who doesn't understand the nature of desire and the awakened being is that for the awakened being, there's a clear perspective on desire, on wanting, and so there's no suffering. For the awakened being, there's wanting, there's just a movement in the mind, just a movement in the heart. So as activity arises and ceases, no problem. For the unawakened being, it arises, misperception, clinging, suffering. And then we turn potentially wholesome desire, like the desire to awaken, the desire to develop, the desire to be helpful, potentially wholesome desire. If we misperceive it, then there's clinging, and then we turn it into craving. And it's no longer wanting, it's now craving. There's tanha, craving, which is a disaster. Craving is a disaster. Hatred is a disaster. So the work that the Buddha wanted to do with these teachings was not just to believe in them superficially, but to dwell in contemplation on these true principles so that we can internalize them. And the practices that we have, like the symbols that we use, if we use them skillfully, these symbols are ways of helping us in this practice of dwelling on, internalizing these true principles. Like the Buddha image is a symbol for the potential of realization of selfless, just knowing awareness, selfless, compassionate awareness. That's what the Buddha image symbolizes. Perfect, selfless wisdom and compassion. And when we bow down to that, and we say, I am a servant of the Buddha, what are we doing? Hopefully we're not believing in that piece of bronze, as beautiful as it is. Rather, we're cultivating a conscious relationship with that potential within ourselves to realize perfect wisdom and perfect compassion. We're aligning ourselves, orienting ourselves with this true principle. We're investing in it. So holding to these beliefs, right beliefs, and also holding them skillfully. Now, that belief in the potential for awakening, the potential for realization of selfless wisdom and compassion, if we hold it unskillfully, then we can be projecting too much out onto the Buddha image, and we can believe that the Buddha image itself is precious, or the Dhamma, uh, the symbol of the Dhamma is the books. The books is not the real Dhamma, or the Dhamma talks we download from the internet. That's not the real Dhamma. The real Dhamma is the truth, actuality that awakened beings realize in their hearts. That's the true Dhamma. However, 
the symbol for the Dhamma, the approximation for the Dhamma, and thankfully we have them, the words and the discourses by the teachers, by the disciples. If we project too much on them, then we're treating the books themselves as if they're holy. Well, yes, we treat the Buddha image with respect. We treat the Dhamma books with respect. We put them in a high place and we treat them suitably. However, if the Dhamma book is accidentally put on the floor, you don't have a heart attack thinking that the book is holy and putting it on the floor is going to cast you into hell for eternity. That's not the Dhamma, that's an approximation of the Dhamma, or the Sangha. The approximation of the Sangha, or the symbol of the Sangha, like the monks, the nuns committed to the training, keeping the precepts, symbolize this possibility, but they're certainly not all awakened, that's for sure. However, we show respect to those who are committed to training in this way, in these teachings, with faith that it is possible for human beings, there have been human beings who have realized these teachings for themselves. So we use these symbols as ways of inspiring, encouraging ourselves to internalize these true principles. So the teachings that we've been given, not just to superficially believe in, not to project too much onto, respectfully, regularly engage with in a way whereby they turn into structures within that support us. In the beginning, yes, they believe their ideas. In the beginning, yes, they're external. However, this practice of diligently, vigilantly applying ourselves to it is with the intention of internalizing so that they become truly relevant and truly supportive. Because if we don't have the support, well, then we're vulnerable. Mm. I often reflect on what's happened to humanity over the last century. I'm well over half a century old now, and I look back over the last century, and, and I think about what's happened to humanity and see the, the increased affluence, the increased education, the increase in health care, all these positive increases, also those terribly high suicide rates terrible amount of suffering in the world. What's going on? And it seems to me that the demise of the influence of religion is potentially a very significant factor. A hundred years ago, I would suggest that probably the majority of people on the planet put one day aside a week to honor true principles. They all had different ways of going about it, that's true, and the, those persuaded by the theistic argument do this anthropomorphizing business, and, and that's the way they approach it. And, and Buddhists, we don't do the anthropomorphic approach, however, we believe in true principles which are internal. And whether you're a Buddhist, or a Jew, or a Hindu, or a Muslim, or a Christian, or any of the other great world religions, a hundred years ago, large percentage, if not the majority of human beings, were putting one day aside to pay attention to cultivating true principles. And such things as, for instance, like saying grace before the meal. I was thinking recently how glad I am that my parents 
brought us up saying grace before the meal, intentionally cultivating gratitude before eating. The intentional effort to cultivate forgiveness, learning forgiveness as a principle, recognizing that this, this is a supportive principle that we can cultivate. And if we don't cultivate this principle, then, as I was saying before, we're vulnerable. Get hurt and spend the rest of your life, the entire rest of your life, dwelling on resentment because you felt hurt. Well, if there's wise reflection and careful consideration and training of the spiritual faculties, then there's a possibility that we'll see that although the feeling of hurt might remain, we're not obliged to invest ill will into that memory. And, and what happens to that hurt, that painful memory, if we don't invest resentment, ill will into it? Well, what happens? We could call it forgiveness. And it makes a profound difference. So, it seems that over the last century in particular has been acceleration away from believing in true principles to believing in personalities. A lot of people these days seek security or seek their identity in their personality. And they're not paying attention to true principles. Now, I'm not advocating that human beings revert back to projecting onto an anthropomorphized image of an external authority. However, I do think it's tremendously important that we consider why is it that there's so much anxiety around these days? Why are so many people committing suicide? Some of them it's due through lack of basic resources like shelter and medicine and food. For a lot of people, it's a mental disorder. And where is that mental disorder coming from? So the possibility we have for training ourselves with internalizing these true principles addresses the heart's longing to awaken. It's natural that our hearts long to awaken from loneliness, from sadness, from suffering. It's the most natural thing. Ever since about the age of seven, by which time we had developed a, a sense of being a person, having a personality, we've struggled to come to terms with this sense of I. Very early infancy, there was an individuated sense of I. By the age of about seven, there is one, and then we've got to deal with it, because this sense of I just loves controlling stuff. And if you're not careful, this sense of I and the corresponding sense of mind, it can be, become a complete control freak. And that's not happy. It's not happy for the individual. It's not happy for those who live with that individual. Once again, this is, this is the role of spiritual teachings to teach us. There's nothing wrong with having a sense of self. However, the way we relate to the sense of self, just the same as the way we relate to desire, the way we relate to aversion, the way we relate to fear, if we relate to it in a wise way, in a skillful way, it doesn't have to be a problem. If we don't relate to it in a wise way, in a skillful way, in a rightly informed way, well then, the sense of I, we can become possessed by it, and become self-centered, egocentric. And that is sad. 
very sad. It causes a lot of trouble. So it's very natural that the heart wants to awaken, wants to be heard in its suffering. The unawakened heart wants to be heard, wants to be seen. There's a very beautiful text in the Psalms in the Christian Bible, Psalm 130, which says, Out of the depth I have called unto thee, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Somebody offering up a prayer of supplication, asking to be heard in their suffering. As Buddhists, we do something similar. However, hopefully we're not projecting onto an imagined external authority. Rather, we're addressing true principles. We're addressing the potential for wisdom, the potential for compassion. So when we do the chanting, like in the evening, like shortly we're going to chant, imina punya kamina, through the goodness that arises from my practice. And then we go through dedicating this goodness, this punya, this wholesome potential. We're dedicating to our teachers, to the forces of goodness, to the forces of evil. We dedicate this punya to all beings. And then it goes on, we say, may the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. What are we doing there? Are we imagining that there's somebody out there who's going to look after us? Or are we addressing true principles with this conscious wish? This conscious wish. May the forces of delusion not take hold. May the goodness that's been generated by my exercise in practice, the exercise in patience, the exercise in generosity, the exercise in gratitude, and the exercise in forgiveness, the exercise in discipline and attention. May this goodness, this punya that's been generated, may the power of this goodness have the effect of protecting me from delusion. So we say this like hundreds, thousands of people all around the world in Theravada Buddhism are saying just these words, either in Pali or in English, imina punya kamina upachaya gunadarao or in English, through the goodness that arises from my practice. Here in this monastery, we don't chant it in English because I personally don't agree with some of the translation. There's one line there that says, may all desires quickly cease, which I seriously object to because I think that produces a misunderstanding. The Pali there is tanupadana, is, uh, which is craving and clinging. It's not desires that need to cease. It's craving that needs to cease. So anyway, that's a side point. The meaning is very important. Right. This protection that comes from contemplation on true principles that generates a force, a power. And like at the very end of that, you know, on sharing of blessings, the Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpasses the protection of the Dhamma, the Sangha is my supreme support. By the power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. We're exercising the power that we have in our hearts to generate conscious wishes. Conscious wishes, not necessarily because we imagine there's some external agent that's going to take care of us, rather addressing the core, what the Buddha referred to as the jitta. The jitta that 
awakened to the Four Noble Truths, and many times you hear the chanting of the Mahamangala Sutta, Jitang Yasana Kampati. This is the jitta, this is the heart that is awakened to the Four Noble Truths at the end of that discourse on the greatest blessings. Jitang Yasana Kampati. The awakened heart is imperturbable, Nakampati. Asokang Wirajang Kemang. Griefless, dustless, secure. This is the awakened heart. Yeah, this is the possibility of awakening that the Buddha taught. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Well,